We're going to be in Psalm chapter 16. If you have a device or Bible with you and want to turn there, we'll read that psalm together in just a couple minutes. Last Sunday, we concluded a long study through the gospel according to Mark. And Mark wrapped things up of his 16 chapters of his account of the life of Jesus and his disciples, but left us in a kind of a peculiar place as he did at the close of the book. At the point of the resurrection of Jesus, it appears that no one is following Jesus. The very climax of the book, after it's all said and done, Mark clears the deck of all the people The disciples turn out to be cowards. The devoted women that have been ministering to Jesus are fearful and uh, squelched, unable to speak. They're afraid, they're bewildered, and so Mark just cleared the deck and left us with one major point. Jesus is not dead. The tomb is empty. He's alive. Never mind about the disciples, never mind about the women, never mind about this, never mind about that. There's one thing I want to land on, one thing I want you all to know. The tomb is empty because Jesus is alive. I don't think Mark was too concerned about where he's going to leave us with the disciples and the women because by the time Mark wrote his account, it was well known what had taken place from there. The disciples were not cowards for very long. In fact, they became some of the most courageous people on the planet. The women were not silent for very long. They began to speak up and speak out. And so the whole thing tended to change. We have a word that describes what they had inside them in this change. The word is confidence. Confidence. They found their confidence. Confidence is going to be the focus of our text today and for the next six weeks. We want to start a new series and spend the next six weeks in the book of Psalms and talk about confidence. Confidence, the belief that you can rely on something or someone. When you have it, in your heart, and you know, I can rely, I can rest, I can trust on something, on someone. Somehow, when we close the book of Mark, all the secondary players in the story acquired a huge amount of confidence. They were able to face some of the fiercest opposition with the greatest of courage. They went through some of the worst of circumstances with the greatest joy because there was something or someone that they knew they could rely upon. These men and women turned into some of the most committed people to walk out their devotion to Jesus. They took sin seriously. They took their mission seriously. And they did both with an unusual zeal because they were confident. They had something, someone, to be confident in. Friends, you and I are in need of confidence as well. 
the Christian life and the work towards confidence is an ebb and flow up and down. We have good days. We have bad days. We have days where we feel strong and fully confident, and then the next day we can wake up, and it's lacking. It's diminished. It's missing, and we have to go and find it. We have to acquire it. We have to strive for it. It's a constant work in our souls and needs ongoing attention. If you and I don't have confidence in our heart, nothing here moves forward. Our dealing with sin in our hearts, our accountability, our helping one another grow, our spurring one another on, it all comes to a standstill. If you don't have confidence, if there's nothing that you can rely upon, not someone or something that you can rely upon, put your trust in, in order to step in and move forward. Our mission as a church is going to stagnate, it's going to sit still, it's not going to move forward unless that ingredient is residing in your heart and in mind that we feel, know, believe, have a sense of confidence. Without it, we stop, we wait, we watch, we guess, we wonder. With it, we step forward, we move forward. We begin putting off sin, we begin resisting the devil. We begin laying aside every weight that slows us down. We begin to be faithful in our mission. We begin to open our mouths and tell others about who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And we see the church grow and we see the church grow in health and strength and in numbers. It all starts the reality that in your heart and in mine, we're confident. We know why we're confident. We know in whom our confidence rests. So that is the essence of the next six weeks of the preaching diet in the book of Psalms. Songs of Confidence is the title. There's a small group of psalms in the book of Psalms. There's 150 songs written. And out of 150, there are about nine of them that fall into this genre or this category called Songs of Confidence. These are songs that are written and designed to take you and me and encourage, stir up, and impart confidence into our souls by reminding us and giving us words that show us who we're trusting in and why. That, in turn, builds our confidence Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, had a wonderful saying. He said it like this, the Psalms have a unique place in the Bible because most of the Bible speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. In other words, we turn to this book to give us words from God to speak, to pray, to sing. And he gives us these words, and as we sing, pray, meditate on, preach from, preach about, these songs of confidence do what they're designed to do. They build up confidence in our hearts. So this morning is simply this. When we know how reliable God is, 
we gain confidence to live for him. When we know, we begin to realize how reliable God is. He is the someone that we know we can rely upon. And when we realize how reliable he is, we gain confidence to live for him. Let's read the psalm together. Psalm chapter 16. Psalm of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. first point this afternoon, simply put, put your trust in the Lord. How does Psalm 16 lead us into confidence? How can we read Psalm 16 and through it obtain confidence in the Lord? First, put your trust in the Lord. David starts off, preserve me, O God, so there is some danger that David is in. Preserve me, I need help. Oh, God, come help me, preserve me. But he's not specific. Now, we can guess, we can speculate, but he's not specific so that now it works for you and me. We can all say, preserve me. And it doesn't matter why you're saying, preserve me. You can just say, oh, God, preserve me. I need your help. I'm threatened by someone who means me harm. Preserve me, oh, God, keep me. I'm being tempted in ways that I know eventually will destroy me. Preserve me, oh God. I'm overcome. I'm overwhelmed. I'm too busy. I'm drowning in life. Preserve me. Help me. Strengthen me. I'm losing heart. My heart is cold. I feel indifferent to the things of God. Preserve me, oh God. Restore me. I'm confused lost my purpose. I'm forgetting who I am. Preserve me, oh God. I'm afraid. Bad things happen. Bad things have happened. Bad things have happened to me. I live in fear. Preserve me, oh God. I failed. I've fallen. 
stumbled, I messed up, I made a mess of things, my past haunts me, my past holds me prisoner, preserve me, oh God, forgive me. Regardless of the trouble, the point is we turn to the Lord when in trouble. We turn to the Lord for help. Choose this Lord. The first two verses are, are, are interesting in the Hebrew, and we read it, and there's a lot that, that kind of goes by us somewhat unnoticed, but David actually uses three different words to refer to God, and there's kind of a progression that goes on here. Preserve me, O God, El, the common word for God, the God or any God, a God, El, God, broad. But with that name is the sense of mighty. God, the mighty, the one with power, the one who has strength. Preserve me, O God, the mighty. I say to the Lord, Yahweh, different word. I say to the Lord, preserve me, O God, El. I say to the Lord, Yahweh. This is the more personal name that identifies the God who called Abraham, the God who spoke to Moses at the burning bush, where he said, my name is I Am. That's where this name came from. I am. It is about his existence, his unique existence. Now it's getting more personal. Now we're not just identifying God, a God. Now it's getting down to the specific. No, this God, the self-existent one, the one who exists above and beyond all other gods. In fact, the one who exists, who is the only true and real God. All other gods were created in somebody's mind, fabricated. Somebody looked at the sun and said, oh, a God. Somebody looked at the moon and said, oh, a God. But God shows up himself and says, I am. I am because I am. I exist. I self-exist. I do not depend on anybody. Nobody thought me up. I was always. I am. I always will be. I exist. I am the all-existent one. I say to the Lord, Yahweh, you are my Lord. Adonai. The word Adonai, the name Adonai, now we're talking about my master, my ruler, the one I identify as my God, the one I surrender to, the one I submit to. Do you see what's happening in just this quick phrase here? If I were to introduce my wife to you and say to you, now, here is a woman, a person. Her name is Tamara, and she is my wife. I just made three statements, and with each statement, your understanding of who she is gets more defined, goes more deep, until it comes down to the reality of you not only know her and her name, now you understand my relationship with her. Preserve me, O God, the mighty. I said to the Lord, the self-existent one, the one who is the Lord, you are my Lord my master, 
the one I live for, the one I've committed myself to, the one I'm surrendered under and enjoy living under his presence. So much is being said in that first statement. Friends, it's easy to say, I trust the Lord. But do you know and think and understand who he is? How easy it is to say, I trust the Lord. Oh, yeah, I trust the Lord. I look to the Lord. What David is saying, I don't just say, I trust the Lord. I say, preserve me, O God, the mighty. I call out to the Lord, Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, the self-existent one. And I call him my Lord. You see the depth, the reality, all what's getting swirled around here. It's like, well, and friends, if we casually say, oh, yeah, I trust the Lord. Uh, I'm, let me guess. You have no confidence. <laughs> you lack confidence. That's not going to get you much confidence in the Lord. If all he is is L, some God, just a broad, oh, God, I trust God. Maybe some of you have had this experience, and maybe your journey, your experience with the Lord started off with something very vague and very general, like, God, if you're out there, if you exist, I'm desperate. If you're real, if you can talk, if you can do anything, I'm in trouble. And if you want to show yourself, I don't know if you're there, I'm just kind of throwing it out there. And if you happen to be there and hear me and do something, well, then I'll know who you are. David says, this is, this is a psalm of confidence by zeroing in on who this God is. He's the God, the Lord, the mighty, the majestic, the all-powerful, the redeemer, the one who revealed himself, the one who rules that I live under. David goes on and begins starting to state and explain expressions of his trust. True faith, friends, always looks like something. A confession of faith, a confession of God is one thing, but if there is no expression of it playing out in your life, then it's empty. And so David goes on and writes, and he addresses God and gives the full three names of God, and then he says, I have no good apart from you. In other words, his faith in this God takes on certain expressions and nuances of his soul and how he understands it and how he feels inside. He's saying, I have no good apart from you. My good Lord is not beyond you. It's because of you. Without you, nothing is good. Having you is my good. And nothing else is good unless I have you. I'm confident because I have you. Do you see what he's saying? Sometimes we want something from God. And we'll think he's good if he gives us what we want. David is saying, no, you're the one I want. There's no good apart from you. Now, of course, there's lots of good things that are not God per se. 
David is expressing his faith and his confidence in the Lord. Look, it's, I don't want anything if it means not having you. What I want is you. I have no good. I think of nothing good apart from you. I would rather have nothing with you than everything without you. If I had everything but I didn't have you, there would be no good thing. That's what David is getting at here. And then he goes on. He says, the saints of the land are the excellent ones. These are the people that I find my delight in. Loving the Lord and loving God's people go hand in hand. It's been my experience with the Lord from the early in my Christian walk with knowing Jesus comes a love for the people that Jesus purchased. There's an affinity. There's a delight. Now, the church that I started off in, I look back and say, wow, that was a weird church. I had lots of problems. It was pretty strange. The theology was completely different than what I have now. I mean, there was all kinds of flaws in that church. Nevertheless, nevertheless, they were the people of God. And my heart was drawn to them. And theirs to me, we were, as we say, brothers and sisters in the Lord because we had the same Savior. We were experiencing the same grace, and that caused us to understand that we were related and bound to one another. I don't trust Christians that don't love the church. Something's wrong. Something's amiss. Something's misguided. Something's misunderstood. Something's not right. And please, you don't have to explain to me how bad the church is. I've been a Christian for 50 years, been pastoring for 22 years. I think I've got a fair read on what's wrong with the church. I might not know it all, but most of my problems took place within the church. So I know there's problems, but it doesn't change the fact. And David is expressing his faith by saying, I look to God's people, and I say, those are the excellent ones. That's where my delight is. That's where my delight is. And he goes on, his next verse. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So on the one hand, his affinity with the people of God is contrasted with refusing ungodly ways. Faith in the Lord, calling upon God, knowing who God is, produces some things in our hearts, drawn to the people of God, and there is an opposition, a resistance to go back to old, ungodly ways. He said, I don't even want to take those words on my lips. This is a new day. I'm a new person. I'm not going back to the old. Those old practices, those are acts of devotion and worship that are directed at other gods, other goals that I no longer can participate in. I cannot live for another. And when I do, it destroys my confidence. It undermines the confidence of how reliable God is when my face turns away from him and I begin engaging with the ungodly, with the pagan with the worship of the non 
gods. We're going to see, I trust, over the next several weeks, friends, the key to increasing your confidence rests so much in your devotion to the Lord. If you really want to ask the question, how can I increase my confidence in God, focus on and increase your devotion to God, you will find it there. You will come into it. The confidence will begin to well up and develop in you. But if your devotion to the Lord is tepid, inactive, if your energy level is not being poured into your devotion, if you're not walking out, living out your devotion to the Lord, you will definitely see the connection between that and the absence of confidence that you have in the Lord. So the first point, trusting God, and trusting God includes knowing Him personally as well as living a life devoted to Him. Second point, see His goodness. See His goodness. From here, David moves on. The Lord has chosen my portion and my cup. What exactly he's referring to here, it's a little bit hard to say. Could be referring to a, a land inheritance. I have my what, what I've been allotted to in my inheritance, but he talks about that again a little bit later, so maybe more likely his portion and his cup is just his daily needs, God's provision in his life. We've been directed by Jesus to pray this in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. We've been encouraged in the New Testament that, that food and clothes, if we have those things, we should be content. And in the Sermon on the Mount, also to be confident that while God adorns flowers in the field and feeds birds of the air, how much more he will care for our needs. We can have confidence that God will provide for us. Now, this is all true, a true statement, but what's said in this psalm is that the Lord is my portion. The attention shifts on what we actually have from the Lord onto the Lord himself. In Numbers chapter 18, Moses is laying out from the Lord all the details about everybody's inheritance, sort of organizing the camp and organizing everybody's inheritance. Got all the 12 tribes here. And at some point makes it clear in chapter 18 that the priests and the Levites are not to get an inheritance of land. So all the rest, here's your plot of ground. Here's your acre. Here's your acre and a half, depending on your family size and how it's all divided up. But to the Levites, to the priests, give them no portion. And in verse 20 of Numbers 18, he says, because I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. He was really using that one group of people to put on display what he wanted in the hearts of everyone in the family of Israel and everyone today in the church, that you'd see that reality and that it would reside in your heart to say, whatever I have, whatever I don't have, this much I know, the Lord is my portion. I have him. If I have nothing else, I have him. And in him, I have all things. And I have everything that I need. He says, Lord, you hold my lot. My lot, my, light in, my lot in life, my place, my status, 
His confidence comes from the fact that he trusts that the Lord is with him in each and every place that he finds himself. You sing the old song, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Whatever my lot. Now this is not the same thing as saying passively take everything as it comes, never escape danger, never right a wrong. What it means, what he's talking about, is that there is no place that I can possibly find myself that I cannot rely on God in. You hold my lot in your hands. Today it's one thing, tomorrow it will be something else. Next year it will be something altogether different. Whatever your lot, whatever my lot, our confidence is that we can rely upon God regardless. Good season, bad season, surplus, lack, difficulty, grief, sorrow, joy, celebration, whatever. Oh, Lord, my lot is in your hands, and I trust that you are with me in every lot I find myself. That's why he can say that the, the lines have fallen in pleasant places. He knows I have a beautiful inheritance. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes, In him we have obtained an inheritance. An inheritance. In other words, all the good that God has for you is already yours. Some of it's just kind of sitting, waiting for you until the right time, but it's there. It's yours. It has your name on it. God is at work. He is working for your good. He is moving you toward the good inheritance that he has for you. And he promises that there will come a day where you and I will step into and receive the fullness of all that inheritance. All these things form in us a confidence. If you know these things are true, if you know that God has said these things and you know that God is reliable when he says these things, what comes? Now I'm confident. I'm confident. David goes on. His wise counsel. Talks about the counsel. And here's what, what, what David has emphasized. Listen, God has spoken. God's not left us to ourselves. He's given us his word. He's spoken. In Proverbs, talks about wisdom crying aloud in the streets. Now, I do understand many of us have many questions. And I understand if you're thinking about your Bible as some kind of encyclopedia, it says, well, I got a problem today. Uh, I don't have a job. And so flip, 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 look, 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 look. Where's the Bible verse that's going to tell me the answer to my problem today? And I know sometimes you can read your Bible and say, well, I don't get it. I don't understand it. All that taken into account. But hear this. God has spoken. He stepped into our lives and into our world, and he gave us words, and he gave us wisdom. Some of it takes some sorting out. Sometimes it takes some digging, but it is there for the taking. 
from his perspective, he said, this is like wisdom standing in the marketplace in the middle, just screaming out loud. I'm right here, right here. All you have to do is ask. Just take a look, slow down, take some time, open the book, read it, think about it, pray about it, ask a friend, ask a community group leader, talk to your pastor. It's right there, the wisdom of God, the counsel from on high, the God who created us and created it all, just laid out counsel, laid out wisdom for us. David is confident because he sees the goodness of God. He sees the goodness of God in the people of God. He sees the goodness of God in his life. And David did not have, he did not live in a rose garden all his days. He had some hard times. And yet he still says, oh, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Why would he say that? Because he has the Lord, even in the tough times. Seeing the goodness of God does not always necessarily come with something visible. Seeing the goodness of God is sometimes something more than just looking at your circumstances and finding things to be grateful for. Of course, here we are living 2022, Southern California, every one of us in the room could just, okay, just get out a piece of paper, start writing out things you're thankful for. I mean, you, you should be able to come up with 100 things within just a few minutes. So many good things, so many things to be grateful for, but that's not really where the psalmist is directing us. Seeing the goodness of God is more about seeing the goodness in his character, in his promises, in his redemptive actions, and being confident and who he is. That's the kind of goodness we need eyes, we need the Spirit to open our eyes to see. The Lord is good. Do I have it good? Well, today, a little bit better than yesterday. Tomorrow, I hope, better than today. No, 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 no. Listen. The Lord is good. Third point, hope in his future. David's working his way in this psalm as he's writing this out, and he's worked his way up to this ultimate hope, knowing who he has put his trust in, knowing how good the Lord is. He says, and this makes my heart glad, and I rest secure. And then he has this bold hope for his future. His confidence in the Lord is that even in death, he will not die. This is an amazing statement for David to make. Even in death, even as I face death, I will not see corruption. You will not abandon me when I die. When I die, I will not see corruption. When I die, I will not remain dead. None of the verses prior to this can really make much sense if when he faces death himself that it's all done and over with. If God were to abandon him on his deathbed, then the first verses of the psalm 
have little sway, make little sense. God is bigger and stronger and better than if when I die, it's all over. But in reality, David is now prophesying. David is beyond himself. Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing beyond himself. And we see this in Acts chapter 2. Peter, the great denier, the biggest failure. In Acts chapter 2, this man who ruined everything, failed Jesus extremely, found his courage. And you know where he found his courage? In Psalm 16. He's preaching the sermon in Acts chapter 2, and he's calling up Psalm 16. Saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter goes on. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David is writing. And David shifts gears. He goes prophetic on us. And he's pointing us to Christ, to one greater. You see, while David's heart and David's devotion to God continue to inspire us, we would all say, oh, Lord, give me a heart of David, a man after God's own heart. There's much about David's life that inspire us in his heart for God and his devotion to God. But he failed as well, too. He certainly came up short. There was only one who trusted the Lord entirely and perfectly. There was only one who looked to the Lord completely. There was only one who loved the people of God entirely. There was only one who embraced his lot in life wholly. There was only one who treasured the inheritance that was promised and who lived by the counsel of God perfectly, who relied on God's presence and therefore was unshakable. And this one died. But this is the one that died but didn't see corruption. Because when the ladies came to the tomb, his body was not there. Because God had raised him from the dead. Even in death, his soul was not ultimately abandoned. God exalted him to the highest place. You see, David wrote Psalm 16. But Jesus was the ultimate Psalm 16 man. 
He's the Psalm 16 person. And Peter recognized Jesus as the Psalm 16 man. And in that, Peter found his confidence. Peter became bold. He went from a fearful denier to a bold proclaimer. The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate confidence producer. This is the issue. That if you land on it correctly, that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, now you've got your thing, your someone that you know you can rely upon. And that's the kind of reliance that makes for confident people. See, because now we see that Jesus was raised from the dead, now it proves that it's all true. It proves all the promises of God. It proves all the things that God prophesied, all the things about that we've been reading. Because he rose from the dead, it's all verified. It's all confirmed. It all makes sense now. Every word of God came to pass just as he said. And Jesus, even though he faced death itself, was vindicated and raised from the dead. In the resurrection, we see just how reliable God is. Are you grasping the extreme reliability of God? A man can be crucified on a cross, breathe his last, laid in a tomb, and on the third day, he's not there. Why? Because God is that reliable. Everyone in the story, the end of Mark, was gone. Nobody was expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. Nobody was looking, even though he told them three times. Third day, nobody was there waiting. Nobody's looking at their watch, looking at their calendar, saying uh, he said he was coming. Nobody believed it. Too far-fetched. Too bizarre of a promise. I don't get it. What do you mean? Died, buried, raised on the third day. I don't get it, Jesus. Explain yourself to us. And yet there it was, an empty tomb. Now God's reliability affirmed, established. If that happened and God said something, would you believe him now? Does that make God believable enough that he would raise the dead? I hope you do. Worship team, you can... Come on up, we'll conclude here. Church, if we don't have confidence in our hearts, we're not going to move forward. Church is going to get real boring real fast. You're not going to want to be here. It's just not going to be fun. It's not going to be adventurous, not going to be exciting. There's no confidence. We sit still. We stagnate. But if there's confidence, if you get it, I get it, and it starts to rise up in us, oh, God, is that reliable? I have someone 
that I can put such trust in that it produces such confidence in me. That's when it gets exciting. That's when we start moving forward. We will move forward in our mission. You and I will grow in holiness. Our bond one with another. How we live together, help one another, share with one another. That will deepen and that will increase as our confidence in God goes up. Fear will be gone. Doubts will be dealt with and dissuade. We will no longer be stuck in self-focus, complaining, comparing, not bearing fruit, bearing little or no fruit. No, it will all change as we look and see how reliable God is and the confidence begins to swell up. Because we know God, the mighty, we know the Lord, the self-existent one who was, and is, and always will be. We know my Lord, my master, my savior. He's with us. He's that reliable. He's that good. We have that sure of a future with him. So we can be confident. He's given us everything we need to live confidently for him. Let's stand. Father, strengthen our hearts. Take these words, take this psalm, let it be like medicine. And for the faint of heart and the fearful and the timid and the and the cold-hearted and the distant and the drifting. Oh, Father, open our eyes to see again and maybe for some for the first time how reliable you are, how good you are, how great the future is that you've laid out for us and promised to us and let that produce in us hearts on fire filled with confidence for your glory.